Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know what I want. Hey, how's it going? Samson Folk here with the Raptors Weekly Podcast. A very, very special episode in that every time the fan base wonders how much money is available, what trades might be made, who should they be signing in the offseason, myself and Blake Murphy get together for either the free agency extravaganza or the trade date, trade, trade deadline extravaganza. And that's what we're doing here today. We'll be talking about all of that after we talk about some of the on-court stuff that's been going on lately. But yeah, that's who's here. Blake Murphy of Sportsnet, of The Morning Show, co-hosting over there and uh, just watching a lot of basketball, watching a lot of sports these days and chopping it up every morning, Monday to Friday. How's how's it going, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I, I had a hell of a time watching that game last night. I guess let your cliff notes of that, the, the Raptors heat game, any thoughts? Yeah, it was, uh, you know... Uh, speaking just personally like it was a night where in this new job um nights like that can be a little weird because um like i'm on leaf duty as well as raptor duty um and those two teams were playing at the same time and it was also the night of the royal rumble which i'm pretty out on wwe wrestling these days but it's still like the most fun event of the year to like bet on or, or watch casually so all those things were going on at once but the timing actually worked out really perfectly where you know, the Leafs are Leafs are obviously always second screen for me to the Raptors. Uh, but the way that the intermissions and halftime lined up was really nice. And then that Raptors game ended right as the Royal Rumble, like the main event started. So that was all perfect. But man, I was like, my main thing was like, I was exhausted for those guys. Like five guys playing 54 minutes or more. It's one of those things where like, had it been any other season, it would be like a kind of a fun wink wink curiosity or whatever it's like oh remember that game like let's uh let's fire up an old box score a couple years from now but instead it's like oh no this is so emblematic of everything that's happened this season um it was really cool to get that win though like i think i don't want to ascribe too much value to a single game but i think you know for those five players who are the core and who, who are probably going to play a lot of basketball together over the next couple of years to pull out a game like that with little reinforcement um, with, you know, those guys, not at a hundred percent, not everyone playing their very best game, uh, a very good heat team that even without Kyle Lowry has been, um, you know, they've been really, really good. A, a monster Jimmy Butler game on the other side, all that stuff. And you managed to grind it out and you managed to pull it out. And I think, you know, that could be a big confidence building win. I, I'm not sure the same would be said for the bench who just like didn't play at all. Um, <laughs> they, they got 37 of the 315 minutes uh, available. Um, but for those five guys, like, I think that that could be a galvanizing game. I think that can be, you know, we talk about that group's got to build chemistry. That group's got to find minutes together. You're not going to find 
54 or 56 uh, better minutes than that to kind of get these guys to gel. And the last few minutes of the fourth quarter, plus the, the 15 minutes across the three OTs, um, I don't think we've seen the Raptors defense at that high a level yet this year. Um, you know, the Heat score 20 points over the three overtime periods, which is nice. Um, but also just you look at some of the individual defensive performances. Uh, I'm kind of rambling all over the place here. That's the kind of game it was. Um, there were so many things that kind of popped up as a story and then went away over the course of, of the game. But man, uh, the big takeaway, I think, other than the minutes total is just how good Pascal and OG especially, but the defense as a whole looked even as that game got into the, oh my God, everyone's so exhausted territory. Okay, so I'll dig in there first. Pascal Siakam, I think, played the best regular season defensive game I've seen over the past however many years from the Raptors. And that obviously a lot of people are going to remember the back-to-back, the stuff on Jimmy, and then the double stuff on Jimmy. But prior to that play, he stuffed Bam at the rim in transition being the only guy back. And then the other play that sticks out to me was the one on Gabe Vincent, where Gabe Vincent turns the corner. Pascal's the only guy back. He stunts to take away the pass to the corner and then blocks him at the rim. And then quite a few, I think four or five defensive possessions where he either hedged the pick and roll late, blew it up, then scrammed back into his own assignment, or just straight up switched onto Jimmy Butler and stonewalled him. A guy who would just completely unlock the Raptors and got to anywhere he wanted and he closed out defensive possessions as a rebounder. The totality of what he did, I, I can't think of a comp or a, you know, a comparable situation as far as performances the last however many years. Yeah, it's uh, it was a monster, man. Like, like I know you can't judge defense from the box score, but you could try sometimes. And he had four steals and four blocks and thirteen rebounds, and was a plus eight in a four point game that he played fifty six, fifty seven minutes in. Um, you can look at it that way. You can look at it highlight wise. You can look at hey, here's another way to look at the the job that Pascal and to a lesser extent OG were doing on Jimmy Butler. The offense ran through Tyler Hero for overtime. That's not. Like that wasn't a mistake or wasn't like Tyler hero, just like going into business for himself. That was in large part, Jimmy Butler couldn't get anything going. And, and you know, you, you see the play where um, he, he ISOs OG and gets the shot off just after um, the, the buzzer goes to end the clock. And I think, I think Tyler Harrow took half of their shots in overtime and was not having a, a good game as it is. And Jimmy Butler, I think, took four field goal attempts across the overtime period. So, um, you know, I think that's the kind of stuff that you can look at how a defensive player is is impacting a game. And it's what is the guy that they're tasked with guarding doing in response to that. Um, so I just brought it up. Yeah, J- Jimmy's usage dropped an 18% in overtime. And Miami's offense ran through... Tyler Hero at 38% and Gabe Vincent at 22%. And if you're the Raptors and you're drawing up, you know, you sure you'd probably trade a couple of those hero shots for, for PJ Tucker shots, but you held Jimmy to below average usage. You you turned him into more of a point guard and bam was like a non-factor offensively. So I think the Raptors defensive rating in overtime was 76.9. Even better than the Boston series, that lineup that had like, what was it like an 82 is between yeah. 82 and 87 defensive rating. The, 
a small ball or uber small ball. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about that too is on the other side of the court, the Raptors kind of toggling between what the hell are we going to run to get a bucket? And they went through everything. They had, you know, OG in low post, OG at the 45 extended. They had some Fred Van Vliet pick and roll possessions. They had Gary Trent Jr. pick and roll possessions. They had Pascal isolations and Pascal pick and roll possessions. As far as shot quality, I thought their best looks came from Pascal's possessions. You get the layup, you get the wide open look for Gary Trent Jr. You get one of Fred's threes. But more than anything, and shout out to Fred, but they scored on broken plays almost exclusively. What did you think of the late game offense? Yeah, well, here's the thing, right? We just talked about how good the defense was in overtime. If your offense was functional at all, it wouldn't have taken three overtimes. So um, I, I just, I changed the range filters, by the way. So the last 20 minutes of the game, five minute mark of the fourth quarter through to the end of the final overtime, uh, 20 minutes. And the Raptors made no subs in that time, obviously. An 80 defensive rating. Awesome. Let's celebrate. Let's let's bring it home. 88.2 offensive rating. So um, not great there for sure. You know, Siakam still has a little bit of the, for whatever reason, the, I don't know if it's the yips or just like the, the finishing isn't all the way there in these situations. And he tends to come up short a little bit on those floater rain shots. And um, Fred was ice cold all game until that clutch spot. And then, you know, 61% true shooting down the stretch there. Um, yeah. I mean, Scotty had some garbage buckets. The, the, the late game offense is just, it is what it is at this point. And um, I don't want to be like reductive about it, but we know what this half court offense looks like. And we know what it looks like when another defense dials in against them and the heat are really good defensively. Like, like they have Jimmy PJ Bam and Gabe Vincent all on the court for that closeout period. And they're doing offense defense switches when um, the situation allows not, not a ton, but there, there was the odd window to do it. So yeah, it's not a great situation for, uh, for the Raptors offense. So um, I I've tended to think that in general, their late game offense has looked best with the ball in Pascal Siakam's hands as basically the point guard um, that frees Fred to be off the ball a little bit with either as a kind of scramble around and pop out for a shot, or even as a screener, which we saw there was, there was one play last night where, where Fred did a little, like, it was like a horizontal screen, the screener almost. And it ended up, he pushed his guy into a double and then he flared open off of it. Um, I just think there's more dynamism to, to what this offense can do if Siakam's handling and Fred's off ball and working around that um, because he is their, their best shooter and OG Gary Trent spaced the floor, but like on a night, like last night where those guys were, were pretty cold down the stretch, you need Fred's three point shooting. Um, so that's where I'm at. It, it's nothing unique to that game. I've thought for a while now, this team's looked at its best in the half court with Siakam as kind of the point guard and Van Vliet as more of the shooting guard. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Especially Pascal is just, he's getting downhill is such an important facet of half court offense because Fred has actually done honestly a tremendous job of pushing the ball in transition way better than any other year. His rim finishing numbers wouldn't be as improved as people think if you took away the transition possessions. He's just done a great job of applying pressure that way. But yeah, Pascal being able to get downhill, make reads from the middle of the floor in a patient and um, composed type of way, 
that's just something Fred can't really do. And that doesn't mean like he's been better than Fred overall or anything like that. It's just Pascal has gotten so good at segmenting his drives. He doesn't need to take a straight line because teams load up and that's usually not available to him. The help side defense would be too overwhelming. So he slows down his drive into parts where he can kind of oscillate between backing down, facing up, all that different kind of stuff. And he's done a really great job of negotiating defenses in that way. And he is a little bit hurried up in, you know, as the game goes on and as it gets closer down the stretch, but uh, (laughs) the shots, you hope they start dropping in after touching every part of the rim, but I guess, I guess we'll see as it goes on the minutes though on your Twitter. (laughs) So you have Gary Trent jr. A little graphic here, Gary Trent at 56. It's the 20 highest minute games in Raptors history. So out of those 25 come from last night, Gary at 56, uh, Scotty Pascal and OG also at 56, Fred at 54. Pretty wild. And so Fred dealing with knee stuff, Scotty dealing with hand stuff, uh, Gary coming back from an ankle, Pascal, OG, Pascal and OG. But these guys are playing heavy, heavy minutes. I, it would be a shame if I didn't ask you what you think of the the amount of minutes they've been playing lately. First of all, you can't say hand stuff. Uh, for Scotty Barnes, it's just it's going to bring people's <laughs> minds elsewhere. Um, it's going to remind people of the sunny hand stuff. What are we in junior high? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So the other thing here too, on top of just the total minutes load, they played the last twenty-three minutes and forty-four seconds of the game without a sub, which is bonkers. Um, I think there's also a you know, we have to be pretty amazed that they didn't get in foul trouble at all. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. And like you said, I posted that graphic last night and, and you know me, there's nothing I like more than finding random Raptors historical stat oddities. And um, first of all, to realize that Vince Carter played all 63 minutes of a triple overtime game once uh, is crazy. Uh, but yeah, this is like, they said it on the broadcast too. It's the first time in NBA history, I believe that, five players on the same team played 50 or more minutes and it wasn't 50 or more it's 54 and a half or more. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think, look, it's a, it's a problem. And Nick nurse has been pushed on it a little bit. And at the start of last week, he said basically, yeah, well, we need to go to a nine or 10 man rotation soon because we have a really condensed schedule coming up and you can look at that. What did they, they had a Tuesday, Wednesday back to back. Um, and so the, that was the, the Bulls game was the second half of that. And even without Fred, they basically played seven guys and then Malachi and Utah kind of split an eighth man role. And then last night, it's basically, I mean, they played eight guys, but again, they played five guys, 54 more minutes in a, in a 63 minute game. So um, you look ahead now and yeah, sure. They have today off. That's great. Uh, They also play a Monday, Tuesday, back-to-back, have one day off, and then play a Thursday, Friday, back-to-back. So how I've always felt about the minutes is it's okay in small windows. Like, you can have a game like that. You can have, you know, you you get into, even if it's not the heat game, pick, pick your game where those guys have played big minutes, and you get down, and there's nine minutes left in the fourth quarter, and... Uh, the game's close and you don't want to give Fred or Pascal the extra two minutes they're supposed to get before they sub back in because the game's in the balance and you want to win that. Like all of those micro decisions are justifiable because there are winnable games and, and you're trying to, you know, you're a 500-ish team. You don't have the benefit of 
of playing it cautious. And if you lose, you lose where it becomes an issue is when your guys are setting modern day records where, you know, Fred had eight straight games of 39 plus minutes uh, before his knee thing. And it was the first time in a couple years, anyone in the league had done that. And at the exact same time, Pascal was on a seven game streak. And those were the only two guys that had in the entire league this year who had done that. And then Fred's first game back, it's 54 minutes. So I do think there's, there's risk here in a couple of ways. There's obviously risk for cumulative load. You don't want to get into a spot where these guys are really banged up or, you know, one day off in a four game and five night isn't enough to get them right. Um, and then there's also the the case of, hey, you can't go 10 games without using your bench, right? And we saw across the Portland, Charlotte, and Chicago games, oh, look, Delano Banton can still give you some minutes. And Precious and Chris Boucher aren't going anywhere. They're going to stay in the rotation. But Malachi Flynn and Utah have occasionally looked okay. Delano's looked mostly good. And I don't know that it's good for anything, really, for those guys to be sitting down for a long time. And, and I mean that, you know, you could talk about it developmentally. You could talk about it chemistry-wise. You could talk about it just like, hey, what if Fred has to sit one of these games where it's four games in five nights because they're trying to manage around that knee? And then... You know, Delano Banton and Malachi Flynn both haven't been played in a couple of days and the team's not practicing right now because the schedule is so condensed. Like there are costs to all this stuff, short term and longer term. So, again, night to night. Yes. You tell me they're going to triple overtime with the heat before the season and you say, hey, all these guys are going to play 50 plus minutes because that's what it took to win the game. I'm going to say absolutely. You do that. And then they all get the next day off in Miami to recover. You add the context that Fred Van Vliet is just coming back from a knee thing. Scotty's banged up. And most of these guys, four of the five of them are in the top 12 in the league in minutes played. And two of them have played like the most minutes in the league over the last couple uh, over the last couple of weeks. Then I probably say, no, well, you can't do that. So uh, I'm very, very curious what the minutes are like over this four game and five stre- five day stretch coming up because this is getting at least a little worrisome with the Fred knee element and the not trusting the, the depth element here. Pistons blazers with no Dame two losses that for me, and I could be sitting in an armchair and thinking too psychologically here, but, and you know, physiologically maybe, but it's hard not to think that they come out flat against those teams because they want that game to be kind of like, okay, we'll take it a little bit easier. Do you know what I mean? Or do you think I'm digging in too deep? Like, because they came out flat. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely possible. Like you're that, this is what we mean when we say playing down to the competition or a trap game or something like that. Right. It's that, that night on the schedule looks like, Oh yeah. 85% of, of our best efforts should be able to beat a Pistons team that has seven wins this year that haven't come against the Toronto Raptors. Um, so <laughs> That's the kind of stuff you're looking at. And like, look, they lost Ken Birch in the, in the Pistons game. Sure. But they also like ran a a six man rotation basically after he got hurt and couldn't beat the Pistons. And at a certain point in that game, you got to, I think like it wasn't close late and the Pistons pulled away. The Pistons blew them out. Um, I think at a certain point in a game like that, you have to either try the bench as a, Hey, we need a spark. We need to, we need to try something different. We need some energy or as a look, something's off tonight. 
and we've just got to live to fight another day. The Portland games, I guess, a little bit different because they started to make that like fake comeback late and they'd come back from 34 to make it a closer game late before Portland pulled back away. Um, But even that one, I think there's a lesson in like a big part of that comeback was Delano Banton giving you energy and freshness and good minutes off the bench. So um, I don't know, man, like four games in five nights here with the workload that these guys have been under, are you, would you expect like a night off for some of these guys this week? I probably would, but considering it's Hawks, Heat, Bulls, Hawks, like, (laughs) I don't know, man. Yeah, they're real games. I guess like Hawks, maybe, especially if like a million games in a row. Well, see, what I'm thinking is like maybe one of the Hawks games, because maybe you let Fred play the first Hawks game, see how he does as Trey's primary, and then you kind of gauge okay, can we put Gary on Trey in game two or something like that? Because Let me spoil that one for you. You cannot. (laughs) You know what I mean, though, right? Or maybe they get, like, really, really adventurous with switching against Trey, or maybe they they kind of test out some pick-and-roll because that's the Hawks. They run a lot of pick-and-roll. You have Trey Young, Mm -hmm. you run pick-and-roll. Maybe they try out some different looks and see how he responds, and then you, you know? I I don't know how they would approach it, but – I don't know if there's a rest game in there. The Horns game went really well without him, but that was uh, a lot of that was three point variance and just Pascal mm-hmm. being super super sharp. So like and the Delano, Hornets having one of those flat nights. Yeah, I actually no. When the Raptors win, it's always against the best version of the other team. They'll be yes, silly, of course. Yeah, Lamelo had multiple triple doubles that game. Miles Bridges was everything that was promised. All that stuff. PJ Washington didn't get thrown out after four minutes. They won that exchange. Justin Champagne was like, hell yeah, I'm taking PJ out. <laughs> but also, though, like, Justin champagne has been benched since then. What happened? He was like the sixth man for a little bit, and then he gets tossed from there. And has he even played since then? No. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what happened. The Raptors got really high and mighty because they had a really low offensive rebounding game against the Hornets. And then they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, we don't even need to worry about that anymore. And then, you know, the the Bulls game and the the Heat game, maybe he'll be back in the lineup again. This this yeah, actually well, introduced You're playing four games at five nights. You're going to need more than six, seven guys. We're, we're going to need six offensive rebounds in seven minutes from you, Mr. Champagny. The, yeah. the thing I want to talk about quick, though, is um, we'll do Gary and OG, and then we'll talk uh, all-star stuff for Pascal and Fred and then cap stuff. But, okay, so the thing is, the Bulls game, I thought, was OG's best game as an offensive fulcrum this year. And not because it wasn't reliant on mid-range shot making. It wasn't like that game against the Knicks where a lot of it was, you know, kind of popping off off the dribble. As we've seen, that's not a super reliable aspect of his game. But he was a post-hub. They did lose to the Bulls. But in that game, I thought that OG was able to break down the defense by doing the early work in possessions. He made a lot of great reads against doubles, against blitzes, and he had shots. What have you thought about the experiment of initiating through OG in the post? I think it's more fruitful than initiating through OG face up right now. Um, you mentioned the, you know, you're not as reliant on, on the, the mid-range stuff in a setup like that which I think is, you know, with where skill set is now, you just don't really like, I find a little bit when he faces up 
it's uh, everything gets a little stagnant. And I don't mm-hmm. think that that's necessarily his fault. I think they're learning how to play around him too. Uh, but he's also shooting 29% on those long twos. So it's probably time to at least for a little bit pocket those. Um, what he's doing a great job of when he's initiating through the post is, first of all, he can bully his way to the rim. He's shooting over 70% at the rim, and he takes a quarter of his field goal attempts there overall. So um, that's strong. I feel like he's a better passer from that position, which isn't all that surprising because even early in his career when he made some like, hey, this guy could be a playmaker kind of reads, a lot of the time it was like, oh, he got an offensive rebound and found someone, or he cut baseline and then made an extra read. So him being able to see that stuff unfold, with his back to the basket and some movement around him um, is not all that surprising to me. So I like it. I don't, I don't know that I want to run a ton of that when everyone's healthy and everyone's there, just because there are a lot of um, there are a lot of mouths to feed when everyone's healthy. But I do think that look, OG, when everyone's there, um, especially when Fred and Pascal are both on the floor, statistically, he's doing more spotting up. He's doing more, Hey man, stand in the corner and you'll get assisted three point attempts. And with this three point percentage dipping this year, those haven't been as high yield as usual. Um, now I don't think OG is going to be a 25% usage guy when Fred and Pascal are healthy, but this is maybe a nice in between where you give them the odd post possession. You know that he can make good reads out of it. Teams probably aren't sending, you know, we saw the bulls double Pascal and like shade the paint with extra bodies beyond that in that game. And they didn't do the same to, to OG. So um, there's an opportunity to get some, get two feet in the paint without a ton of extra help. Um, Yeah. And I think it's just like, it's a good thing to keep in the mix. And I I think also there's some versatility there in terms of you can run stuff for Scotty in similar ways. And then the roles of Gary OG and, and Pascal or sorry, Gary Fred and Pascal around that, don't change that much. You can kind of have the same package for both of them as you figure out what the right mix is and what the right volume is for each of them in, in their spots. So uh, I like that better than, than face up OG. I just, I'm not out on that as something he can work on over time. It's just, you know, the results aren't there. Like they were there the first couple games of the season. So uh, using him a different way makes a lot of sense to me. I also just kind of like the, Tim Hardaway Jr. has been a better playoff um, teammate for Luca than Kristaps Porzingis has, and it's because Tim Hardaway Jr. was doing an incredible amount of terrible work in New York, and like the fruits of that labor shows up in a playoff context when you have to go to counters and stuff. Why not let you know? Especially like you look at the Bucks game where, and overall, like you can find a little chart that says Pascal Siakam is being doubled on over thirty percent of possessions and Fred is around 28%. That's a lot of defensive attention um, for Pascal. That's only behind Luca, Shea, Joel Embiid, John Morant, and Giannis Antetokounmpo. And Fred is behind like four or five more players, including uh, KD and DeMar DeRozan. That's a lot of defensive attention. And to have like the ability to just kind of toss it in to OG for, you know, a an empty side post up, that might be beneficial for the team or an empty side pick and roll, depending who the partner is. That's, that's helpful. And especially, you know, there, we'll see what happens with Gary as things go on, but that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about now, the Gary thing of it all. So there's kind of a question that's been sitting in my brain that I always want to answer no to, 
But Gary keeps on responding with, you know, now three straight 30-point games. Is Gary Trent Jr. one of the most talented shooters in the league, or is he still riding some sort of incredible wave of shot-making? Because I know it sounds like, well, he can't be one of the best shot-makers in the league. He's only shooting, what, like 42.5% from the floor, maybe like 37 38% from three. But his shot diet is one of the most difficult of any shooter out there right now. And to even be at 42.5% is like a hell of an accomplishment. I think a lot of people with this shot diet would be around 36, 37, perhaps even worse. So I'm curious what you've made of his season offensively, because he's been a streaky shooter in the past and now he's just been on a level. What is it Kyle used to say about tomorrow all the time? He is a bad shot maker. Uh, that was Kyle's favorite way of, of describing DeMar. And I think Gary Trent Jr. is getting there a little bit, right? I don't have, you know, we, we can, with things like second spectrum and stuff, we can see, oh, what's the expected field goal percentage on this shot off of this many dribbles in this location with a defender this close and compare that to what Gary Trent Jr. actually did. I don't have access to that stuff, but here's what we could tell you. He is carrying pretty, pretty sizable usage. He's above the 90th percentile in long mid-range looks per cleaning the glass. And he's at an 82nd percentile in hitting them. So the volume efficiency trade-off is real, even on long mid-range shots, even though those are the purview of star players usually. Um, to be shooting 46% on long mid-range shots that you're taking more than 20% of the time is it's just like for a team that doesn't have a ton of spacing and a ton of natural rim pressure, it stands out as a really important skill because you have to be able to operate in that little bit of mid range, because that's what defenses are giving you. And you're not elite at the other things. Now the, the counter to that would be that Trent's field goal percentage is very low overall in part because he doesn't get to the rim and doesn't shoot very well when he gets there. So there are, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, but I think you, you look at, Hey, we've got a, what do we got? We've got a thousand three point attempt sample now that says Gary Trent is a 39% three point shooter. And not all of those are assisted. Some of those are self-created um, 81 and a half percent have been assisted in his career. So, you know, about 20% of his threes are, um, self-created and then more than half of his twos and almost two thirds of his twos this year have been self-created. And again, 45.9% on the, the longer, uh, the 16 feet and out 48.5% in that kind of 10 to 16 foot range. And then even 43% in that like floater range when, when he doesn't get all the way to the rim, but, but pulls up short. So those are good numbers and, and they fit where the Raptors offense is well, because again, they don't have, knock down three-point shooting, and they don't have a ton of natural rim pressure. So what's left on the court to score from? I do, you know, you can question how this, not scales. I don't want to use the tech term of like, how does this scale? Because I don't think there's a scenario in which Gary Trent is like a 25% usage guy anyway. But I do think there's a question about how does this skill set fit in a better offense, which is a weird thing, right? Because if the offense is better, he's probably getting more assisted catch and shoot threes. So his overall numbers probably look better, but he probably has far fewer opportunities to do the things he's been doing this year. All of that is to say, compare it to guys around the league in terms of 
mid-range volume and mid-range effectiveness. He's not the best, but he is uh, hes one of the top bad shot makers going, that's for sure. Strange statistical thing on the Raptors. Uh, OG Ananobi's true shooting percentage, 0.544. Gary's 0.545. Pascal's 0.546. Kem's 0.547. An oddity, to be sure. But yeah, so like the thing with Gary is he's just not getting to the rim. I think, what is it? Over 100 possessions or 100 used possession, shooting possessions, he might get to the rim on what, like seven? I don't know, like seven out of 100. It's just not happening very often, and the free throw attempts right. are, are not there either. But the point you make about it standing out as more of a necessity and kind of it's larger as you see it in the Raptors' offense is, is a salient one. It's It's a very interesting – because, you know, it's always like – symbiotic of course the way that players and teams coexist and you know he's in a a very very interesting spot before we get into the all-star stuff for pascal and fred though a quick message from our pals over at jack health want to get to the top of your game jack health at www.jack.health is an online service for men's health that handles the doctor's appointment getting the prescription and shipping which by the way is free All you need to do is stay at home and relax. Sexual health, daily health, hair and skin, it's easy to book an appointment with any of their certified doctors. You don't need to tell everyone and their mother your issues like when you go to the clinic and mumble what you're there for. Do it all from the privacy of your own home through www.jack.health and boost your game to the best it can be. And uh, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet. All-star game, all-star thoughts. Let's uh, let's start with Fred, the guy who hits all the big shots. Never not. Oh, are you asking me if I if I think he's going to make it? Just kind of your thoughts on if he will, what's the case, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I think he has a case. I think he, like the Raptors, are only a game over five hundred, so that's that's going to be tough. A lot of coaches have said well, I take the standings and I go down that way. And the Raptors are pretty far down the standings. By the time you get to eighth in the East, uh, your ballot might be full, right? So let's play it out. You look at Miami, you know, Jimmy Butler's probably going to get some love there. Uh, I don't think Tyler Hero's there yet. He's going to get sixth man of the year. He doesn't need to worry about all-star. But Jimmy's going to get some love. You go to Chicago, Zach Levine's probably as close to a lock as there is. Um, Philly, probably no one. Cleveland, there's going to be real Darius Garland love. Milwaukee, you probably get some Drew Holiday veteran nod. And then, you know, Chris Middleton's not a, he could land on the guard or front court spot. I don't think he's a, an all-star this year, but he might get some of the, hey, these are the defending champs and we respect them a lot nod. Um, there's James Harden on Brooklyn. You get to LaMelo Ball on Charlotte. So you have all those potential guards on the ballot before you get to, the Toronto-Boston mishmash, which has Fred and Jalen, and then at the other position, Tatum and and Siakam. So it's going to be tough. I I did think Trey and DeMar getting in was the best case for Fred, Um, but I think it's probably coming down to him, Drew, and Garland for one or two spots. I think, you know, obviously we watch Fred a lot more, right? We we know just how important he's been to this team. Hitting 39% on 10 threes a game and a difficult diet of threes is monstrous career high in assists and rebounds and close to the top of the league in steals and deflections and a very good defender, all that good stuff. And even just 
if you're just going counting stats wise, 22, five and seven is historically, those are all-star numbers. So I think he should be in. I, I really don't know. I honestly, this is the, this is an answer I feel really badly about because it turns two positives into a negative. I think him and Siakam are going to split the, we got to give the Raptors a nod vote between the coaches because they both have compelling back back of the roster all-star cases. And if the coaches go like, you know, if every coach decides Garland's the guy they want to award on Cleveland, so he gets 14 votes and seven decided it's Van Bleed and seven decided Siakam from the Raptor side, then Garland's getting in, right? So uh, it's a bit of a weird spot to have two candidates internally for what's probably only one spot. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that, that's the interesting part of it is that Pascal is the guy who has all-star, you know, he's been an all-star. He started the game. If he was the standout player on the Raptors, the media and the coaches would probably be more comfortable just saying, oh yeah, he's back to it. That's an all-star. We've seen this before, but Fred is trying to kind of, you know, shake loose of this analytics darling mold And, and just, just in optics, not in reality, he's still an analytics darling, of course, but trying to be more accessible for people who are just looking at the game through like, well, I don't watch every game and I don't look at the peripheral statistics and I'm just seeing this now. And it's, it's harder to see it because he's this small diminutive guard. And while 22, five and seven is certainly good. It doesn't pop as much as some other numbers that are being put up in like all-star respect. So it's really interesting. Uh, Pascal. Now Pascal is starting from way behind because of missing those games, but his last month of basketball, I think has been like roughly 23, nine and seven. And he's, now, this is maybe a fringe belief, but I believe he's been a better defender than Fred in that pocket of time, but certainly not close prior to that. And so I'm, I'm curious what you think of his all-star status. He's an interesting case because, again, he missed the first chunk of the season. He missed, what, the first 10 games? And then his first five games, and he had another game off in, in there, we're pretty shaky. He had that one really good game against Detroit, but otherwise they were pretty iffy. And sometimes what happens with stuff like this, at least more on the, the media vote side is the narrative gets locked in, right? Like, Oh, this is the story. Siakam's still struggling a little bit. And he's, you know, first it was the bubble and then the COVID and now the shoulder. And then you look and let's take away those five games to start the year, which is, his first five games, he had no preseason. He had no offseason. I think I think we can do him that favor. He has averaged 22.1 points, 8.7 rebounds, 5.3 assists, 1.3 steals on 48, 34, 73 shooting. That's 29 games. He's averaged almost 40 minutes a game over that time, uh, almost a plus five per game. And yeah, he's gone from, I would say, the first half of that sample. He was the number two. And Fred was kind of still the guy and Pascal was doing an admirable job finding, you know, Hey, Scotty was cooking while I was gone. OG used more possessions. Fred's kind of been the guy. Where do I fit in? And I I thought he did an awesome job, you know, spike the rebounding. The defense got back to a level from him. We haven't seen since 2018, 2019, I don't think. And then, you know, as Fred has not even cooled off, but just like seeded some of that responsibility, Siakam's last, I don't know, 15 games maybe are like you, you talk about what 
the best version of him would look like in terms of point forward Siakam. So let's let's go since he got back from COVID, which is 17 games. Almost seven assists per game, uh, over a two-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio, averaging almost a double-double at 23 and 9.2. And then those shooting splits have gone up to 48, 38, 73. So as his usage has gone up and as his playmaking responsibility has gone up, over the course of the season, he's gotten even better. And I would argue the defense has gotten better too. So Siakam is actually in a weird spot where I don't think Fred's going to have much of a chance at getting all NBA at the end of the season. Siakam might legitimately have a chance to be one of those rare, didn't make the all-star team, got a lot, if not all NBA third team, got a bunch of votes at the end of the season. I just think that the 13 missed games and those five where he was shaky and the narrative was very unfair to him, at least locally, you know, that probably hurts the chances here in addition to the vote splitting. Yeah. Well, the the point you make about all NBA is a really interesting one, especially with Paul George, Kawhi, Randall, guys like that falling out of the race because of a regression to a former version of themselves, struggles, injuries, whatever. And even Tatum, right? Like Tatum, it has like huge box score numbers, but his efficiency is dipped. And so is the defense per a lot of the people who pay attention to defense. So it's, it'll be really interesting to see the case for Pascal. It's like, if he keeps this up, right. If Pascal gives you 22, nine and seven, that's kind of nutty. That's absurd. And so, and especially at those splits and that defense, it would be really interesting to see. Uh, I probably would still, if there's a guy to be rewarded for all-star, I would probably put my chips in on Fred. I mean, the body of work over the course of the season mm-hmm. has been immense. The team, basically, he plays the minutes, they win the minutes. He doesn't play the minutes, they lose the minutes. He And he has all the peripheral statistics, all the catch-alls, and then just the the traditional box score stuff recognizes him as such. I think it would be, it'd be pretty sad if he didn't get to make it because he's really, really earned it. And maybe he would actually play in the the three-point competition if he was also an all-star because apparently that's what held him back last time. Is Fred your guy probably? I think so. Wait, are you saying he didn't make it because he wasn't going to do the all-star game or the three-point competition? Yeah, he got invited and he said he didn't want to, he didn't want to do the all-star and he didn't want to go to the three-point competition because he wasn't an all-star. He hasn't gone because he says he doesn't want to go unless he's an all-star. Yeah, that makes sense to me, man. Wouldn't you rather have just the, have the time off? I mean, I I I'm not like a professional basketball player, and I've never been to an All Star weekend. No, so you're like, a professional yeah. dancer, are you not? Uh, yes. <laughs> Understanding that correctly? <laughs> yes, exactly. So I would probably, using my small brain right now, say like, yeah, I'd go to the All Star game regardless. Because what am I? I'm like Austin Reeves, except significantly worse at basketball and much shorter. I'll go to the All Star game, sure. Um, yeah, but- I've been to one, I've been to the one that was in Toronto and it was a, a lot of fun. I don't know that like Cleveland still in a partial, I think in, in the U S you would say partial pandemic, I guess. Whereas here in Toronto, it's, we're still fully pandemic. Um, I don't know that that would be the choice for me. I think I might just try to hit a beach if I don't get, uh, if I don't get invited to the team outright. Do you have a beach in mind? Well, I'm assuming in this case, I have the money and access to private flights that they have, in which case, I don't know. I don't know enough beaches, um, but 
I know that that's what they always do. They just disappear. Uh, and then you see one Instagram photo once they're back of just like the sand or something like that. Oh, to disappear and then emerge covered in sand. Anyway, the, uh, the cap thing, let's, let's get into that. We're approaching the trade deadline and a very interesting one for the Raptors. You and I have just been talking glowingly about Gary, about OG, about Pascal, about Fred. There hasn't been much Scotty, but obviously you and I both really enjoy Scotty. We've both talked about him glowingly. He's batting an extremely high percentage as far as rookies go offensively. The defense is coming around. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really nice to see that core or quote unquote core is doing things. And we also talked about the bench minutes. So that puts us in a position now where we have to look at this team and say, is there help on the way? Should there be? Won't there be? We'll get into the the cap part of it, but what do you want them to do at the trade deadline if they can? The, the spot I'm at with the Raptors at the trade deadline is that I think I think you have to be realistic about your paths to adding to this core and through that, recognize that there's never a bad time to add talent. And what I mean by that is last year was their cap space year. They decided to use that cap space to facilitate the Lowry trade and pick up Precious Achua as a prospect. That's okay. That's, that's your choice. If Precious ends up being a guy, maybe that looks a certain way. And a lot of the guys that they could have gotten the cap space for which also would have required, um, you know, releasing some guys before the guarantee dates and stuff. They were guys in kind of the Gary Trent tier, both salary wise. And, you know, is this guy a flyer? Can we develop them kind of wise? So the opportunity cost there was what it was. They opted for precious. The result of that and some of the contracts they've given out since is that they're not going to be a cap space team this coming summer. Realistically, as long as Pascal, Fred, and OG are, are on the team on these contracts, they're probably not going to be a cap space team because even if Gary Trent leaves, Scotty Barnes will eventually need a raise and, and some of the other guys will. So I don't think, and, and Pascal and Fred are like 28 years old. I don't think you're waiting for another big cap space year, another big swing for a free agent year because that hasn't borne fruit for you and, and it's too slow a play. So I look at this team as currently constructed. All the core pieces are here, at least for next year, probably even longer if you want them to be, because even if Trent opts out, you have his bird rights and you have a, certainly the inside track on re-signing him at that time. So what you're looking for right now is if you decide as the Raptors that this is your core and you think that you can win with this core, either you know by adding around the margins, hitting on another picks, developing Scotty, or by doing what they did for the 2019 title, which is stay good for a really long time and be opportunistic when a trade opportunity comes up to be great. Either of those directions require you to right now be in kind of overall value increasing mode. So I look at something like Goran Dragic's $19.4 million expiring contract. And I have come around from, you know, at the time I would have been like, yeah, if you can, if you can eat money, um, or, or find a like contract coming back and pick up like a second for it. That's cool. Then the Lowry trade is kind of Lowry for precious in a second. I have come the other way where I would still be open to that. Like if, if someone is trying to unload longer term money and they're willing to pay you to do so, that is a way to increase your asset base. So let's say 
we'll use the Dallas example just because that was the presumed one. I'm not saying this is out there. I'm just saying, let's say Dallas is like, look, we're out on Dwight Powell. We don't want Dwight Powell's money on the books next uh, next year. We want Dragic, but we also want you to take Dwight Powell. And in order to do so, we will give you prospect X or draft pick X. I think that's one way the Raptors can use this position to increase their asset base. But the other way, which wasn't talked about a lot at the start of the year, because it's not tech, it's not traditionally a move we associate with a building team is what if you attach an asset to Dragic's contract to get something meaningful back where we're saying now, oh, let's look for a team that's in a similar position to the Raptors and they are willing to, you know, unload a guy in order to, or sorry, a, a position dissimilar to the Raptors and they're willing to offload a good player for financial flexibility or for a pick or something like that. And suddenly, even with the tax in mind, you could take back 19 million in salary. And really the asset cost of Dragic is nothing come February 10th, right? So you're talking, he is a salary matching tool only from the Raptors perspective. If you can get a capable rotation player for a first round pick, if Atlanta is, you know, because they've got a bit of a roster crunch and cap crunch, if they're no longer seeing Bogdan Bogdanovich, as a a long-term piece there, for example, if the Sacramento Kings do more aggressively pursue a teardown and a Harrison Barnes or a Buddy Heald shakes loose, um, there are some other names you could dream on, right? Like there are a lot of guys in that 15 to $20 million salary tier, and you can get there even further if you're willing to put, hey, a Malachi Flynn in a deal, or even a Chris Boucher who fits what the Raptors are doing and his bird rights still have value, but he's an expiring contract. He's 29 years old and he'd fit on a lot of benches around the league. So all of that is to say, I think the Raptors could go either direction. I think I would be not disappointed, but underwhelmed if it's, if Dragic is just bought out post deadline at this point, I just think that salary ballast is really interesting for adding a long-term asset by using, Hey, we're not going to be a cap team. We'll take on a salary for next year and pick up an asset for it or the opposite direction. Hey, we've got the salary for salary matching. It's the rare window where an expiring contract has value. We'll give you something to give us a player for it and you get the financial uh, benefit from it. So that's kind of where I'm at. And those are two, they're two different approaches, but I don't think that they're, they signal different directions. I think either way, you're just in, the mode right now where you're trying to improve your asset base and Dragic's contract, as much as the situation has been annoying for people, that's their best path to doing that because the salary rules are real and you have to match salaries and the type of players who move at this time and aren't on rookie deals or aren't max guys, Dragic's salary tier is exactly what you need for a move like that. So um, I'm optimistic that something shakes it out between now and February 10th. I just think there are too many, there are just too many um, ways you can, you can work it out too many structures, too many um, directional options and teams around the league willing to go in either way that I, I mean, Dragic isn't going to be on this team at any point this season anyway, but I'd be a little disappointed at this point. If the, the resolution is just a bio post deadline. Okay, so that puts us in a position where you and I, well, I'm just going to ask you, how comfortable are you doing the spiel on 
repeater tax, the $18,000 below tax line, and the implication of all of that, just for the listener. Sure. I could do that because of the implication. Hell yeah. So the Raptors are, this is, this is based on my cap numbers. These aren't like, they don't make it publicly available and I have to make some assumptions here. If Gary Trent were to hit all of his unlikely bonuses, the Raptors would be about 18,000 below the tax line right now. It's why Sam Decker isn't on the roster. It's why DJ Wilson didn't get re-upped after the hardship exemption expired. Staying under the tax is a real thing. And I know that the response from some people is, well, it's MLSE, just pay the tax, just pay the tax. That's fine sometimes. They pay deep into the tax in their championship season, for example. There is a reality to how they're operating right now, though, and a couple of them. The first is that this is the third season in a row for them of pandemic-limited revenues. So you have the the stoppage of the season and then the bubble where league-wide revenues were down. You have last year where, um, you know, no no fans in the arena for Chunksville. The Raptors are playing in Tampa. And then this year, the Raptors are one of the, I think, the team that's been limited the most in terms of attendance and gate revenues and stuff like that. So that's real. That's something MLSE is looking at. Another thing that's real is that front offices, for the most part, don't run on this is your one-year budget, and then this is your one-year budget, and then this is your one-year budget. There's an understanding of a sort of rolling multi-year budget where if you spend into the tax this year, that's hypothetically taking money from next year's budget. So if you want to be a tax team next year or the year after when you're closer to a contention window, you probably don't want to use that money now. Um, There's also a repeater tax. The Raptors don't have a ton to worry about there because you have to be in it for uh, three out of four years before it kicks in. Um, But one last factor here, because I know people don't really care about this stuff that much. Waving Sam Decker when they did only got them out of 1.3 million of his contract. Based on league-wide estimates of what the luxury, the teams who are in the luxury tax are going to pay this year, that is about a real swing of $18 million for the Raptors because getting below the tax line then also allows them to receive those tax payments, which get split up uh, among the non-tax teams. So we're talking about like a $15, $18 million swing there just from the Decker thing. This is why if you're doing the trade machine, it's not enough that the trade be approved by ESPN or trade NBA or whatever your, your favorite spot is. Um, I would say your most realistic approach is the trade should probably be salary neutral or have the Raptors taking back a little less money this year for a little extra breathing room, because they're just not going to go into the, it doesn't make sense for them to go into the tax in a year where they're going to be maybe a play in team and revenues are low and they might want to save that, you know, ask of the MLSE board for, a year where a championship is more realistic and a trade deadline move is not adding to the long-term asset base. It's adding to uh, championship contention. So those are all the reasons you want to stay below the tax. Those are the reasons that instead of using the trade machine approval to see if a trade works for Dragic, I've been going in my head like, okay, salaries have to match or the Raptors have to take back a little less. For all for all your hypothetical traits that you love to dabble in, you just he sends me like I hope the listener understands. Blake is sending me seven or eight a day, hairbrained yeah. schemes. Uh, There's also, a thirty team, five hundred and ten player trade. Yes, 
Uh, just a, a quick note for the listener as well. Blake, Blake sent me. So Devin Booker, Seth Curry, and Kevin Durant are the only players with higher long mid volume and higher long mid field goal percentage this year. So that is the company that Gary Trent Jr. is keeping as a, a mid range shooter, which is pretty wild. And the last thing I want to talk about, Blake, before we let you get out of here is you talked about, okay, are we looking to attach an asset? Are we looking to build the asset base? Like the Kawhi Leonard version of the Raptors was the fruits of a bunch of really solid draft picks, solid trades, like Terrence Ross for Serge Ibaka, put them in a really good spot, spot, all that kind of stuff. And now this is a team that needs something or needs to make decisions, whatever it is. Contextually, what would you most like them? What would you most like them to go after? Is it a guard? Is it a big? What what is your ideal situation there? The honest answer is whatever is available, right? Like I I don't I don't want to get too jammed up in that because if you get too narrowly focused on one thing and to the extent that you're you know unwilling to look at other things, I I, I don't think that's a good way to approach things. So, yeah, yeah. So I I think with this current version of this team and what's out there on the market, like what I would assume is out there on the market anyway, I think I'd probably lean backcourt help. Um, Again, a center is probably a bigger issue long-term if you believe Siakam and Barnes could carry a playmaking load and you have Van Bleed and Trent. A center is probably the bigger long-term issue. I don't really see who that's going to be this year. Like you could maybe make a play for Nurkic, but that's uh, you're going to have to pay Nurkic after as well. You could make a play for our guy, Rashawn Holmes. I kind of think, I kind of think if they wanted Rashawn Holmes at that price, they could have just got him this off season though. Uh, And now they'd have to add an asset to it. Uh, I'd love to say Daniel Gafford now that he's not playing much in Washington, but he's not trade eligible in time. So that would be more of a, an off season play um, there. I think there are just probably more paths to finding a backup caliber point guard or shooting guard. Um, and maybe not even like backup caliber. Like I mentioned Bogdanovich and healed as uh, you know, potential guys. And I'm just throwing names out there um, based on guys in that salary tier. But you know, those that type of guy, even like this is unsexy, but like even a Doug McDermott could be available. And that's a guy who helps with your, you know, he's kind of super Svee. So uh, Svee who's playable, you know, if you, if you prefer. So I'm trying to think, I thought there was another name that I really liked in that tier. And now I'm just drawing a blank on it. Um, well, Doug is a great suggestion for what it's worth. Like the way that the Spurs are able to use him, he is an offense unto himself. And as you said, it's like, it's not sexy, but he shoots 40% from downtown and it's on like these super dynamic screens and handoffs and stuff. And the Raptors really knew how to use Norman Powell. Oh, of Eric course- Gordon was the other one in mind, mm. which is, which is maybe one where like, I don't know what Houston's appetite is just to get out of the rest of that deal. Like you might not have to attach a ton of asset to it. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I've been wondering is like, are they looking to, what are they looking for? Are they dumping or are they trying to get stuff back? And like, how important is that to them? Because obviously Eric Gordon provides a lot of what the Raptors currently don't have, especially like as a guy who Pascal and Fred get doubled all the time. Eric Gordon is a guy who really can rumble to the rim 
and attempt to finish there. So that would be a very interesting aspect of the offense if if he came in town. Like he he still gets to the rim almost like 30% of his possessions this late in his career. And he's per basketball reference shooting 68% from three feet and in. So that is an aspect of offense that the Raptors, it would be completely unique to him as far as the dynamism. For sure. And again, it's are the are the Rockets looking for assets or did they just want out of next year's salary? And then I believe the year after that is is unguaranteed. Um I don't know. This is something that, you know, maybe right now they're saying they want assets and then come February 10th, if they're not getting offered assets, maybe that changes. Um, maybe Eric Gordon want, wants it out quietly. And that's an important factor that keeps them from holding him for an off season trade. I don't know that that's stuff that we probably won't know until closer to February 10th, but I throw names out there to show that I think offensive oriented off guards or wings are are probably going to be easier to acquire than centers who fit the Raptors defensive ideology. Uh, before we let you go, Jakob Pertl, it's uh, just because, just because the fan base has been enamored and like people have been talking, just your thoughts. Love Yak. I uh, think he'd be a good fit. Don't know that it helps the team's free throw troubles, um, <laughs> but uh, he's become an elite offensive rebounder, a very good shot blocker, a really solid defender. Um, you see him averaging almost a double-double this year and, and shooting for the fifth year in a row above 60% from the floor. Uh, I think it would be cool. I don't think that's at the top of my shopping list just because they already have some spacing issues and, again, the free throw woes. And um, But Jakob Pertl at the $8.8 million he makes is – one of the better bargains in the league. And he's only got one year left on the deal after that. So if the Raptors ultimately decided, look, there's nothing else out there that we liked. We just want a center. We want another guy that that we like and can rely on and believe in. Sure. Like, like you're not, you're not in bad shape with Jakob Pertl at 9 million, Ken Birch at 6 million and Precious Achua at like 2 million for a center rotation next year. Um, yeah, he's and hey, he's four inches taller than everyone else on the team. <laughs> yep, uh, a new a new dynamic. Tall players in the NBA. What a strange team that they they're jumbo in the middle, no, and they're very small at the point guard position. They're tiny. Well, actually, they're tiny at point guard. They're tiny at center, but they're just huge in the middle. What a strange team. Uh, any parting shots, Blake? Nope. Um, Hey, actually, you know what? If uh, so every year I've done the, all your trade ideas are bad column. I'm not doing that in its same iteration this year, uh, just cause you know, it's a very labor intensive thing and I'm at Sportsnet now doing the radio gig. Um, but I think what I'm going to do is I got uh, Grange and Will Lou to send me some of their fake trades and I'm going to tell them why those are bad. Um, if you're listening to this, Shoot me your fake trades on Twitter. Like, when is this going up? Monday? Uh, yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, I'll put the cutoff at like Monday night or, or Tuesday morning or something. Send me some. Can't promise they're all going to be included like usual, but uh, a couple never hurt. So throw them my way. You are a mad lad to take on requests. I, this is this is new for you, I guess, because there's no more athletic uh, subscriber base. Yeah, this is. Uh, I got nothing. A novel, a novel enterprise. Okay. Um, if Esfandiar Berheni is listening, send the trade request, S, please. Uh, Blake, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been a blast. 
thanks for having me. And and if S does send in some, someone's gonna have to send them me because he's long since muted. So <laughs> okay. Uh, for anybody wondering if you weren't aware of who Blake was prior to this, thank you for uh, <laughs> valuing my voice over his. But if you liked what you heard, you can find him on the morning show six to ten Monday to Friday on Sportsnet, and uh, for all your sports needs, not just basketball, but that too. Blake, thanks for coming on, man. Listener, thanks for listening, whether you got into this in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day and goodbye.